Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, uh, Leah and Kiera, for leading us. Um, good morning, everyone. Uh, we have the amazing privilege this morning of hearing from uh, two uh, dear friends of mine that I have the joy and privilege of working alongside of in student life, uh, Caroline Tranchel, who's our student care manager, and her and her husband, Alessio, who's the director of Women's Corral. So maybe some of you uh, ladies know, um, some of you know him as well. Oh, Okay, and, <laughs> and uh, the, the, uh, Caroline and Alessio recently adopted their first fur baby, a little pug named Roger, and, um, and seen lots of fun pictures of, of the three of them and their fun adventures around the cities uh, this fall. And then our second, te- second person sharing this morning is John Hitston, who's our Associate Dean of Residence Life. And he and his wife, uh, Jeannie, have three uh, human babies uh, that you'll be hearing more about. Um, but I want to pray for both of them as they share and invite them up. And um, um, really, this is a joy and a privilege to, to be able to, sh- to, to hear from them. And I invite you to really lean in uh, and soak up um, what God's going to say you know, through them. So would you pray with me as we invite uh, Caroline to, to, to come to the stage. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity we have. Uh, to worship you, to stand in your holy presence, God. And thank you that we can do so together as your beloved and redeemed children. Father, thank you so much for, uh, for Caroline and for John and for their willingness to share from their lives uh, the testimony of your grace that, you, that, that, that has been at work, that is at work, that will continue to be at work. And you say in your word in Revelation 19.10 that, this, that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so, Father, I pray that as they uh, proclaim uh, who you are and who they are in you, Lord, that that would, that would ripple out and the same grace that has been at work in their lives would, uh, we would sense at work in our lives as well. So Father, thank you uh, for both of them and uh, help our hearts to lean in, to be attentive and to be open to what you have for us together this morning. We love you so much and we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. So would you please welcome Caroline to the stage. There was this one lie that I believed for most of my life. It caused me to make, carry my identity around like a load of rocks. It felt uncomfortable on me, like I could never wear it right. I dreaded the word testimony and the word identity, and so I crafted a template, and I stuck my life into it, and as long as the result was in Christ, then I knew that I could approve it. So for most of my life, I tried to do equations, and I should have known I was doomed from the start because I'm terrible at math, and chemistry grade will forever be branded my lowest mark. But I'm a doer and a pleaser and a perfectionist and other labels that have immediately prompted your mind to connect your brain with words like impatient, suck up, annoying, fake, or maybe me too, and what's new, and to be a Christian, or isn't that religion? The lie that I believed was that my identities were ungodly. At an early age, I learned that I was in Christ, and so I tried my hand at another equation, division. And so I spliced, and I spliced, and I spliced, and every part that made up me I painted and painted again until all that it said was in Christ. 
No need to engage with the other pieces of my life, of my experience. It's all peace and daisies when you're in Christ. No need to bring questions or struggles to light. When I was in college, my boyfriend asked me, why don't you want to be American? And I was immediately defensive. It wasn't true. I knew that it was a privilege to have the life that I lived to be a United States citizen, and yet what I wanted more, if I had to have a label on my forehead, was for the words to say proud Argentine instead. See, I was born in Argentina and I moved to Wisconsin when I was seven. Oh, so you're Hispanic. I guess. I guess? Yes, yes, that must be what I am. But my mom is from Ohio and my dad is from Wisconsin. Am I Latin then? Well, what's your heritage? German. And this one time in fourth grade, I brought chocolate Austrian cake for Heritage Day. So I guess I'm European. But what do I do about the empanadas and chocatotas in mi vida en Buenos Aires? Lo olvido? No importa? And why does it bother me so much? Why do I have to go around proving that I'm Argentine enough? I know that there is a loss. For years, I was stuck between two cultures. And my parents would be the first to admit that they could have done more to help me transition. They could have done more to help me understand their decision. They could have done more to help me fit in. And yet, I'm angry for how well I did that last one, how well I merged into the part until I could pass as if this is where I was from. And so I straddle two cultures, never enough of one, too much fitting in with the other, wanting the old, wishing I could distance myself further from the new. And so I ignored it. I move on. But in reality, at age seven is when I no long, when no longer living in Argentina, and I was trying to reconcile the United States as my new home, is that I struggled and received the message, I don't belong. So I went to church. And sometimes I hid my sense of not belonging with good Christian answers. My identity is in Christ. The rest is just excess. I kept growing up, and all the while I kept trying to embalm the rotting feeling that I didn't belong in fragrances of perfectionism and control, an equation-driven Christianity for the teenage soul. I left high school with my have-all-the-answers mentality, not having been a listener, having been a knower. I had pain and I had confusion about the world around me and my place in it, but I tried to live in the black and white. If I don't fit in exactly like everyone else, then something must be wrong with me. Black or white, never gray. Gray's never okay. Gray means questions. Gray means vulnerability. Gray means I might not know. And so I entered college with my laundry list of confident answers and overflow. And you know what? I was okay. I made friends and I attended events and I loved my classes. But what I didn't realize, not even a little bit to give myself credit, was that I was a master at shoving the questions away. I was a master at pretending I was okay, and over and over again, I had to reintroduce myself, share my story, share my least favorite word, my testimony. All of my buried questions were thrown back in my face. And now they were simmering, 
there were things about church and the world around me that I didn't know if I believed. I was always trying to be good when what was bubbling up was my truer desire to be honest, to be whole. And so I was back to wondering who I was, what I believed in, what made me me. Not what I thought God would want me to say to be a good Christian girl, but what would I say truly if I could be brave? I sat in class racking my brain to figure out what was something that was unique and creative enough, but also true to me to write for my paper on this I believe. What do I believe at the core of me? Should it be something bible About my in Christ identity? What does that even mean? And it wasn't until it was named when I was asked what was wrong with fitting into the North American mold that I realized I didn't know. All I had was a deep longing. So I went back to Argentina to search for my roots and I spent six months there looking for the fossils, the remnants of my belonging, of my place. And I realized all my confusion of cultural identity had been hiding beneath the label in Christ. I went back hoping to find answers, hoping they'd be attached to a rope that I could tie to my wrist that would tether me down so I could say, see, here I am. I have finally been found. I dreamed that somewhere along the busy Buenos Aires streets would be the proof that I'd been secretly searching for the majority of my life. The truth. So simple that I could pick it up and put it in my pocket. It'd be the answer to my deep-seated questions of who am I? It would be a golden necklace with an etched locket that would say, enough. And I would open it up, and it would erupt with the memories of my childhood before I moved, and my friendships, and that gorgeous, perfect accent, and my innocence before I even knew that there was another world waiting for me. But I opened that locket, I picked it up off of my beloved city street, and spewing out of that trove, spilled my ideals and my misplaced hopes, and I realized that it had all been a trope. It had all been a metaphor for what I had wished for, and my questions and shame around them had been shoved further and further down, and I didn't expect that they'd ever be found uprooted. And still, it didn't matter that there was baggage from my youth, and I was confused. All I needed to remind myself was, I'm in Christ, and then I didn't need to feel. Finally, I could exhale. Now I didn't have to question all the pain, the confusion, the unavoidable nagging worry in my gut, the sense that inherently I lacked. I lacked something. I knew which box I should check on that standardized test, and yet I wanted to put a big and bold and angry X on the one filled with my longing and regret. I had spent so many years painting over my questions and my flaws and my joys and my fears within Christ, in Christ, in Christ. It doesn't matter. I'm in Christ. I had spent so many years in a sort of identity erasure, all in the hopes that I was being in Christ enough. And when it came to pain, when it came to another year of school, and my mental health had taken too much of a dive, too many years spent coping unhealthily with my feelings pushed aside, I needed to take a semester off. And even then, I didn't connect with my body, my brain, or my history. I continued to cover it with my identity in Christ. What does that even mean? And so I connected with my dear friend, Paul, 
and I berated myself with the age-old riddle, crying out, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do, and if I do what I do not want to do, but perhaps, Caroline, you do not understand because you have not taken the time to engage with what you feel. Perhaps what you do is misconstrued, and so you do what you do not want to do because you have never taken the time to learn your true value. Perhaps you do what you hate because there's been pain and confusion in your life, and you do what you do not want because you've not spent enough time with your therapist and with coping skills, and you haven't ever let your questions out to breathe. They're always shoved under the scapego that scapegoat of yours in Christ always stirring inside, coming out sideways, coming out begging that you would no longer let them alone ignored, but that you would invite them in, invite them into your life. Maybe, Caroline, you could begin to trust that God is in all of those spaces. And if it's true what Abraham Cooper says, that there isn't a square inch of the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, then why would I think that that's any different with me, with my therapy, with my identity? And if that is true, then in Christ does not need to be a label that I wear to hide my questions or my fear. If that is true, then I think if I give myself the permission to believe that God is offering me something much, much better, God is offering me freedom not fear. Freedom to question my decisions, freedom to listen, freedom to read critically what the apostles and prophets have written, freedom to question my doubts and my identity and to wander and to wonder, what does it truly mean to belong? And so over time, encouraged by brave authors and brave friends, I rewrote the lie that I had always believed. No longer would I believe that to be in Christ was a call for fear or perfection, to be in Christ is an invitation to freedom and wholeness, the joy of acknowledging without judgment. I can be a listener, not a knower or a labeler. I know that my story doesn't fit into an X on that fresh Scantron, on that standardized test, and so I remember that that must be the case for everyone around me. That's not uniquely me. There are times that labels, when worn thoughtfully, can be conduits of peace. It's not debilitating, it's freeing. I have anxiety and I am in Christ. I struggle with mental health and I am in Christ. I have a story of cultural identity and familial diaspora and I am in Christ. I have had seasons of doubt and seasons of deconstruction of faith and seasons of feeling like all I'm doing is running in place and still I am in Christ. Being in Christ does not negate the impact of each of those identities. It's the truth from which they grow. To believe that I'm beloved, to believe that that is enough, and to let that freedom drive me forward in exploring all the facets of my being, the things that have happened to me, that I have done, that have been passed on, my gifts, my joys, my doubts, my sorrows, to explore them all and to trust that in them all, I am in Christ. That remains true. My belovedness does not move. So let me rest. Let me go forward in joy divine, excavating the pieces of me that God sorrowfully watched me push, push aside. And so I have received the invitation 
to honor and bring forth all of my identities. I spent seasons on learning what it means to live with chronic mental illness and seasons on grief, seasons on cultural and ethnic identity. I've spent seasons figuring out what it means to be a wife, a student, a best friend, a daughter to a widow, a daughter to a dead father, a friend to my mother. And I cannot tell you in a one-word label what those identities mean to me or the conclusion of I've reached. You'd have to listen to each individual story. There are seasons when one identity is prioritized over the other, and I will have seasons when new identities emerge or perhaps just questions around them. And so I will wrestle with the identities which have long worn without question and spend times with the ones that have long been a burden. Just like Jacob, I know I do not wrestle by myself, and though engaging with my identities might be daunting, lonely, and new, asking the questions I thought I was never allowed to, I can remember that God is my sparring partner in the process drawing me closer through and through. God was purposeful in creating me human with all my complexities and wonders, and he rejoices in me, in me using this vessel of mine, not as a thing to hide behind his name, but as a soul that will engage. So I look for Christ who resides in each of my identity's places, and remember that those two can be sacred, beautiful spaces. All right. Hello, everyone. My name is John again. I'm the Associate Dean of Residence Life. Um, a little bit about me really quickly. So I've got three kids. Um, oh, here they are. Yep. Fantastic, beautiful family. So this picture was taken uh, the day after Zeke was born. Um, he's a little one in the middle, if you haven't figured that out yet. The one on the right here is Eliza, my two-year-old, the one that's like an inch away trying to kiss but not quite getting there. Um, our oldest son is Ezra. He's six years old. Um, and then there's me and my wife there. Um, again, day, taken one day after uh, Zeke was born. Um, so we've been talking about identity and like what does identity mean? And I wanted to share, I think really what it's at my core, a little bit of my identity is in, in my family. A little bit of my identity is in, in the pieces of who, who's God, who God has made me to be. Um, but what really it boils down to, my identity is as a child of God. Um, and so I'm going to park on that for a second. I'm going to actually take a little detour. Um, what I really want to say here as I go in here is, First off, who, I'm terrible with remembering dates. Anyone out there remember, terrible with remembering dates? Anyone? Okay, there's a few that I'm okay with. I've got my, my wife's anniversary, my kids' birthdays. If you ask me right now, I'll forget because they're all staring at me, but I know I know them. There's one other date, though, that I remember and I've got packed down, October 1st. October 1st, I remember for one reason. It's my mother's birthday, and if you don't know your mother's birthday, you need to get on that. It's an important one. Two, I remember that date because... Last October 1st, I gave my mom a call. Uh, me and my wife called her together. Um, the call didn't quite go like we initially had planned. It went something like, Mom, I don't think this is the birthday call you're hoping for. I don't know how to break the news. But Janie has breast cancer. What we had learned earlier in that day is, is that, and through the coming days, we learned that she was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer. Triple negative breast cancer is a grade three type of cancer, which means it's the fastest growing cancer. They couldn't t do some of the tests right away, but they had signs that had, it may be in lymph nodes, her lymph nodes were swollen, and we learned that if it's in lymph nodes, it's gonna transfer to the bones, and if it's in the bones, it becomes a very bad prognosis. So we said, what's the game plan? What do we do? How do we tackle this thing? 
Um, they told us we had eight weeks of biweekly chemotherapy, and this, I didn't know chemo's complicated, but this chemo's made up of three different kinds of chemo, so it's like a super duper chemo, followed by 12 weeks of just your average kind of boring run-of-the-mill actual chemo. Um, the side effects of those that we knew we were going to be facing would be loss of hair, loss of, sorry, this is kind of gross, loss of toenails and fingernails, uh, nausea, exhaustion, a few other unmentionables, worse than what I've said, and neuropathy. Neuropathy is a big one because what that is is the loss of feeling in your fingertips and your, and your toes. Potentially permanent. My wife Janie is a sign language interpreter. We thought that's kind of a big deal. She's got a lot, a lot at stake there. Um, beyond chemotherapy, there's surgery, cutting out what remains. Beyond that is another seven weeks of daily radiation. Symptoms of that include a deeper level of exhaustion and skin burns, early menopause, and a few other things. And we said, great! Let's sign us up. We're ready to take this on, right? We, we're, ready for the, we're ready for this challenge. And they said, no, hold on. You're going to sit there with that for three weeks. Three weeks? We know it's potentially in the lymph nodes. We know that this is bad when it gets and We've got to wait for three weeks. And in reality, it makes sense. What I haven't shared yet, and maybe you've put a few context clues together, Janie was pregnant with Zeke. She was in her third trimester. And we could not, we could not start chemotherapy until he was brought into the world. Um, it was too early to induce labor, so we had to wait three weeks before we could do that. Um, and so we started saying, like, well, doctor, if we got, what's the best case scenario? What's the worst case scenario? And the doctor said, best case scenario, we do the game plan, you come out perfect, all done. Worst case scenario, the doctor looked at us very solemnly and said, I worked with a similar mom, similar backstory, similar stage of pregnancy. That mother did not live to see their first birthday of their daughter. And we sat with that for three weeks. I tell you that my identity is in Christ and as a child of God, and I know that that's firm, but sometimes when your world is spinning so fast and you don't know what's up and you don't know what's down, it is hard to find that focal point that you know never changes. We knew that identity was there. We, were, we didn't question that, but it was hard to find it. All things considered, I do say it was a blessing to have those three weeks. It forced us to sit with us. It forced us to give up control. It forced us to look to God and say, God, how are we going to do this? And over bit by bit, more clarity came into our lives. Bit by bit, we began to, to, to figure out some preparations for the journey ahead. Bit by bit, we were able to joke about cancer, which is kind of weird, but you deal with the cards you're given, right? Bit by bit, we were able to open up to family, friends, family and friends. Uh, we opened up a CaringBridge website, and people poured in to help us as we told our story financially, with childcare, with food. Um, we were continually reminded of what it feels like to be a part of the body of Christ. Um, when those of you around us, the helping hands, the feet that poured into our lives to help us make it through this challenging journey. Because we really needed it. it. We needed it. It was a challenging journey. Um, this picture was taken the day before... Janie started her chemotherapy. So Zeke was born on October 17th. Janie had, min Janie had minor surgery on October 18th, the day after, to prepare for chemo. The day after that, she started chemo. Never mind the whole recovering from birth thing, because whatever. So, if you're curious, that's what chemo looks like. It's very anticlimactic. It's, you, they bring it in this like, radiation, like radioactive bag. Like, don't touch. Never, ever touch this stuff until we put it straight in your bloodstream. Um, so this is what our... our chemotherapy looked like. This is a picture of my beautiful wife with uh, lots of hair. This is a picture of my beautiful wife with short hair. This is a picture of my beautiful wife losing her hair and part of the therapeutic process of our kids being a part of what that was all about. Uh, and this is my beautiful wife with no hair. And last, kind of rounding out the whole chemotherapy process, this is the second to last week of radiation. This is my, my beautiful family um, and the kids kind of learning what this whole chemo thing was all about.
So that was kind of the kickoff of, of our journey. There's a, few, there's a lot of other things that happened in that time. Um, and so I'm going to fly through a few of those just to give you a snippet of what that looked like. Um, but some of these things seem big. Some of these things seem small. They all seem big to us in this season of life. Um, so we bought a minivan. We, uh, we went through all the phases of chemo. We went through surgery. This is Janian surgery prep. We went through radiation. Me and Ezra found a dinosaur because you have to have some fun along the way, right? Uh, Zeke had a heart murmur that developed, and we had to have a few extra doctor, doctor's appointments to figure out what that heart murmur was all about. Zeke also developed a misshapen head, which, don't worry, he's still really cute. His head was just a little bit misshapen, and he had to wear a helmet for six months. He's all good now. Uh, we had to figure out just getting to and from work, getting Ezra to and from preschool on a daily basis, as well as during that seven-week period, getting to and from radiation every single day. Ezra's graduation, he made it. We made it through the season. Um, Start with somewhere through that process. I, I started a new job because I figured why not take on, take on another challenge. We because of that new job I had to move off campus, so we moved off campus and we moved at the peak of Janie's exhaustion in the middle of her radiation. Um, we went to like five weddings because you college kids just don't stop getting married. <laughs> and then the, probably the most complicated of it all for those of you any of you staff that are parents or any that are going to be parents you'll understand is just plain keeping three kids alive. Eliza, you're supposed to keep the beans in the bucket, not on the floor where Zeke's going to eat every single one of them. So that was the series of our, our seven months. And people ask, how did you do it? How did you make it through all that? And it felt like everything in our life either completely fell apart or changed. But we knew one thing never did. We knew that our identity in Christ and we knew that our, our identity as children of God never changed. People came in and supported us in so many ways and we are so grateful for that. But God what was, what was who was constant. We ended every single Caring Bridge post with, the, with scripture. Uh, one week we used Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know I have plans for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And that sounds beautiful, right? Here's the reality, though. The context of that verse, the context of that verse is God is speaking to the Israelites who wanted to go to the promised land, but were going to die before they made it there. They had a goal and a vision in their life. They had a place they wanted to be, and God knew that they weren't going to have that. This generation was not going to make it there uh, before, they, before they passed away. We wrote this verse at a time where we didn't know what was next. We didn't know what was around the corner. It was a scary time to, to write it. But this, has a, this verse has a much bigger context. It's got the context of you as a family. Like, God, you, you may not make it to where you want to be. You may not end, end your life in the way you want to end your life. But God has a beautiful and huge plan. And so that's the context that we wrote that verse in saying, God, we don't know what's next. This thing could end ugly. And yet we want to trust you. Earlier in life, I was inspired by a family who lost their teenage son in a car accident. At his funeral, the parents stood up and led a worship song. At his funeral, they sang, He gives and takes away. They grieved the loss of their son, but their identity was in God, and it could not be shaken, and that is what we aimed for. That is what was, inspired me. And so, listen up. I will tell you the end of our story. But if you're listening to what I'm saying right now, you need to know it doesn't matter. The end of the story truly doesn't matter. Whether Janie is well or not does not shake her identity as a child of God. It doesn't shake mine, and it shouldn't shake yours. I'm happy to say that after Janie's surgery, she was told she was cancer-free. After radiation was finished, 
Y'all gonna make me cry, stop it. Uh, <laughs> uh, after radiation was finished, she, told, she was told there's only a 3% chan chance her cancer would return. We praise God for where we're at now. We're so thankful. We understand that it may not be over. We understand that there are a lot of cancer journeys out there that don't end as beautifully as ours has at this point. Um, and so we join those people in prayer. We join those people in how we uh, serve alongside them. And as we move forward, we choose to place our faith in Christ in remembering our unshaking identity in Him alone. My family, what's beautiful about this is my family, God's family, my family has some amazing big picture plans and I'm blessed to be a part of that family. No matter what comes our way, be it a smooth road, a road with obstacles, or a flat out dead end, I am a child of God. Thank you. So, Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this time to hear um, these testimonies from Caroline, from John, and I pray that as we go from here that we would be reminded that our identity in Christ is a lifelong journey of formation, and it's not an individual project, it's a communal one. And thank you that we get to be a part of your family and a part of this community. We love you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed. <laughs>